Welcome to episode 10 of Regulate Tech with me, Nicholas Berlumblad, and... With me, Richard Allen. So, today we'll do another one of those classic episodes, and the classic that we wanted to talk about today is one that is not read that much, I don't think, by today's policy people. It's an excellent paper by Judge Frank Easterbrook called Cyberspace and the Law of the Horse. So, what do horses and cyberspace have to do with each other, Richard? Yeah. So, so this does take us way back to 1996. And actually, I think we're going to talk about a pair of papers, aren't we? There's the original one in 1996, and then there's uh, yes. a response in 1999. But the, the one that, that was put out in 1996 was uh, um, by a guy called Judge Easterbrook, who was on the United States Courts of, Court of Appeals. And he was asked to come and speak at a cyber law conference. And essentially, the, this phrase, the law of the horses, he, he raised this question to say, look, when we are dealing with a, a set of issues related to cyberspace, is it better to look at the general principles of the law? So if it's harm online, what are the, what are, how do we generally deal with harm in the law more, more broadly? If it's to do with theft, how do we deal with theft more broadly, et cetera, et cetera? Is it better to look at all of those individual generalized laws or to create something called the law of the horse where uh, all <laughs> of the laws as they pertain to horses are pulled together in one code? And you use horse as an example. It was a kind of kind of metaphor for something like cyberspace. But if you have a a specific thing, we have horses. They exist in society. They can be stolen. They can cause harm. Uh, they they can be harmed. So so yes, do we take that specific thing and create a law for that thing, a horse or cyberspace, or do we just take a bunch of generalized laws and then say, look, how do we how do we apply them to the horse, or how do we apply them to cyberspace? And then it became the sort of rallying cry back in the late 90s you know in in this debate to say cyberspace specific law or application of generalized laws to cyberspace as as the best legal approach to regulating cyberspace so so it's interesting right what judge easterbrook seems to be saying here is is what we've heard a lot of lately which is that that which is illegal offline is also illegal online but with a small difference, he says that there's no actual legislation needed to make sure that that's the case. It's the case prima facie. It's always going to be the case because the law applies equally to cyberspace and to to the real world, for lack of a better term. Um, so it seems to be a very... Uh, there are two things here, right? It's an expansive view, view of the law, that the law doesn't need to change. It already applies. But it is also an expansive view of regulation of cyberspace, a sort of a maximalist view. Nothing new to see here. You have to treat this thing exactly as everything else. So so what happened? Because it <laughs> seems as if, yeah. if, if there's a lot of law, there's a lot of horse law out there to... to coin a phrase. So I think there was, I mean, again, if we come to the second part of the pair of papers in in 1999, a guy called Larry Lessig, Lawrence Lessig, who we've already talked about his other papers, his his, uh, famous book is Code and Other Laws of Cyberspace and so on. So so he was uh, uh, a sort of legal scholar looking at cyberspace and he he respectfully uh, contested uh, the view of Judge Easterbrook by saying, look, actually there are uh, specifics to cyberspace that means that you do need a law of the horse. You do need a specific law for cyberspace. And really at the heart of that is at the heart of it, his entire theory is that, is that there are different forces governing cyberspace and and predominant amongst those forces. I mean, they're, they're balanced, but the one that is peculiar to cyberspace, if you like, is, is the code, the software code, which actually equates with architecture in the same way that the architect of buildings uh, you know, uh, affects things that happen in in the real world. On well, the same way, the architecture of cyberspace, the code in cyberspace affects it. But but his sort of core theory is look, that code is so important and and has comparable effects to the law that in a way, you know, if you don't take it into account, if you don't make a law for cyberspace that that re- recognize and reflects the importance of the code then you're going to go wrong so in other words what, what he actually says at heart really is and this we're sort of seeing coming through is look the the law the public law where where it governs something like horses in the road the public law can say you know this is what should happen if a horse kicks you or if you steal a horse in cyberspace the code is so important that the law, rather than rather than just sort of saying what should happen when a particular in- incident occurs, the law should also tell people how to write their code. Uh, in other words, the design of the road, if we sort of pull the analogy across, and the design of the horse 
are things that can be governed by law. Uh, so that's quite a different concept. And, and actually, Larry, you know, argues really quite strongly for uh, the law to intervene and tell people how they should write their code. And this is 1999, remember? If we fast forward, what, 23 yeah. years, basically that's what the UK's online safety bill does. That's, that's what <laughs> a lot of the current legislative measures do is they are precisely telling companies, online cyberspace companies, how to write their code. So it's a, it is a different kind of law. You, you can't have a law that you know says you, you must now have horses with six legs or horses with two legs. You know? uh, but you can have a law that says you must design your online service in a particular way or a different way. Uh, law can instruct people how to write that code. And then that code, in turn, has effects that are comparable to the effects that law would otherwise have in terms of directing people and telling them what they uh, can or can't do or uh, removing content or you know issuing warnings or controlling access all of those sort of things that the law might do the code can do in cyberspace it's interesting because what it means is also that that lessig sides with the cyberspace exceptionalists so saying essentially that this is a new thing this is a new place and you can't apply old rules to it you can't apply old laws to it and that means that for lessig there's still an open question of whether or not it should be regulated in the same way mm-hmm. as the old world was regulated i mean he does argue for the regulation of code for sure but he also argues for for example um making sure that there are uh, significant um, exceptions to copyright law, to take just one example. Whereas what Judge Easterbrook is saying, that you have to, once and for all, make these determinations for how you want the rights to be distributed, and then you apply them across all of these different things, and cyberspace is not new. Uh, And and there is, is, haven't we sort of gone full circle here, where we're no longer cyberspace exceptionalists we're back with judge easterbrook but what we're saying is we still need the law of the horse in order to make sure that everything is treated exactly as it is offline there's a sort of hybrid thing going on here right there is a hybrid thing and in a way i think we do need both i think we should tease them out so so i think there is some merit in lessig's argument that Look, if, if you want to achieve certain things in cyberspace, look, I, frankly, the easiest way to do it is to instruct the people who build cyberspace to build it in a particular way, in other words, to direct the code. But but that only goes so far. We are still left with this whole body of you know, normal offenses, offenses that are committed online and offline that, that um, are also impacted by the fact that the internet exists the fundamental nature of those offences has not changed. So back to Judge Easterbrook, that, that, you know, we don't, I don't think we need to have a separate law, for example, an area that I'm looking at at the moment in Parliament is fraud. We have a Fraud Act in the UK. And the Fraud Act says, if you deceive people, you, you, know, you use deceptive behaviour to try and cheat people out of money, that's an offence and you should be prosecuted. Now, you know, online, it's the same offense. <laughs> you don't you don't need a separate law to say, you know, online fraud is illegal versus regular fraud. All fraud is illegal. All forms of deception for monetary gain are illegal, however they are carried out. But that's not to say that the online aspect doesn't change in some ways the, the nature of the fraud or the nature of the fraud landscape. So the fraud, each individual fraud, no different. The fraud landscape has changed. And I would argue there are three essential qualities to the internet that, that mean that the landscape has changed. Um, the first sort of critical one is scale. You know, the internet is designed to do things at scale. And so, again, the old-fashioned fraud, somebody could, you know, come up to me in a pub and say, look, uh, I, I own that horse outside. I'm going <laughs> to sell you that horse, take my money. And it turns out that they didn't, you know, actually own that horse. I've been cheated. But... You know, it's quite hard to get round a lot of people. It'd be one person in the pub would approach me occasionally. Now, obviously, with the scale of the internet, potentially millions of people can approach me with fraudulent propositions on a daily basis. So scale is important. Cost of entry is critical. The internet makes it cheaper to do things, all things. It makes it cheaper. We're, we're doing a radio broadcast now, effectively. We don't need to yeah. buy a radio station. We could do a radio broadcast for next to nothing. And and so it's made the cost of becoming a fraudster cheaper. Uh, and so you know anyone anywhere can set up as a fraudster. It used to be quite difficult. You'd have to buy disguises and, and go to pubs and buy people drinks in order to win their confidence. And now there's lots of cheap and easy ways to do it. So 
scale and reduction of the cost of entry, and those two in many ways related. And then the third critical element is the internet is essentially borderless. And so it's from anywhere to anywhere, and that's deliberately inherently in the design. Again, traditional fraud, somebody would have to have been physically present or or perhaps use a mailing address if they were going to do mail fraud in your own country. And now they can send the SMS or send the the fraudulent email from anywhere in the world to anywhere in the world. So each individual fraud, exactly the same, should be prosecuted under the Fraud Act. But at the same time, we need to recognize we're in a different landscape, in terms of enforcement at least, when we're dealing with things at such a huge scale, where the cost of entry is so low for new frauds just to enter the market, and where it's borderless. Uh, And so it can be from anywhere to anywhere. And I think with a lot of the things that we're dealing with on the internet, it's those three qualities that have changed, rather than the substantive issue in question, you know, the the aggression or the illegal child sexual abuse material or the encouragement to terrorism, all of those things are the same offences as they always were. But there is a change in the landscape, the offending landscape and the enforcement landscape because of these particular qualities of cyberspace. And, and the, those who are interested in, in European legal history will see that exactly this argument is at the root of the so-called IPR enforcement directive. The idea then being that, yes, IPRs should still apply. Yes, you know, what's illegal in the offline world is illegal on the on- online world. But the very nature of enforcement has changed. And so the argument back to Judge Easterbrook would be, yes, you're right, should apply. But we have a problem with enforcement, and that's the the problem we should fix. That argument in itself does not necessarily uh, get us all the way into, for example, platform legislation um, or other kinds of legislation that we see popping up now. So, so the enforcement part seems to be true. But do you think there is a if we sort of go back to Judge Easterbrook and we really read him as generously as we possibly can? Do you think that there is a point at which we we have decided that we need new laws because this is such a big thing that the impact of the internet overall on society has actually generated this demand for political action that is then translated into legislation, even though from a purely legal perspective, if you just look at the jurisprudence of it, we could probably get away with what we already have. Yeah, I I mean, you know, so so real people are suffering they're being victimized and again as we yeah. as we sort of look at uh, the fraud landscape it's now the biggest crime in the uk <laughs> fraud wow. largely committed online is the biggest crime so every day people's lives are being devastated and and the fraudsters are finding you know smarter and smarter ways to cut through uh, and and get people to part with their own money uh, and they're constantly evolving so so these are real issues i actually think what 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 a lot of the laws of the horse look like or the cyberspace look like is essentially are trying to reverse some of those qualities of the internet that I just described. So if you look at what what the platform regulation actually does, is it says, you know, can you try and increase the cost of entry for the fraudster or the person trying to do harm? Can you put barriers in their place? And that can be you know, all these issues like identity verification or, you know, scanning for bad guys, and, uh, all, all sort of tools that that uh, platforms can put in place. And you can see the online safety bill is full of that. It's saying you've got to do all this sort of pre-screening and all sorts of things. So to sort of raise the cost of entry so it is harder and more expensive for somebody who's intending to commit an offence to get onto a platform. And they are also, to quite a large extent, sort of hoping that they'll re-erect the borders. <laughs> so, so you know, make it smaller scale, increase the cost of entry, and re-erect the borders. So let's go back to the status quo ante. It is, if in effect, what, what you often see that the legislation driving us towards. It may not be that explicit, but that would be the net effect. It's to make it harder for the the the, the perpetrators uh, to actually get onto the platforms and use the internet. Now, in an ideal world, the internet will remain, you know, massively scaled and low cost of entry and borderless for the good guys, but just be, you know, really difficult for the bad guys. Now, the, the hard thing, obviously, in, in legislation is to try and uh, craft it so that it's not everybody who ends up paying the price. And the risk of some of the laws of the horse, the cyberspace legislation, is that's precisely what it will do. It will, it will um, uh, sort of throw out the baby with the bathwater. It will, it will, it will have that limiting effect on everybody's use of the internet in order to make things more difficult for the perpetrators. So, I say you've got the laws are mostly staying the same, but then you've got this complementary set of cyberspace laws 
that are trying to uh, reduce the scope for offending by, in many cases, undoing the, the ease of use that the internet inherently brings. And, and there's another argument that you could levy against Judge Easterbrook on the basis of what you just said, the sort of the reintroduction of friction into the system in order to make sure that that some of the some of the advantages but also disadvantages of the internet are neutralized by, by legislation. The other argument you could you could uh, have with Judge Easterbrook's text is to say, look, you have to understand that the law, such as it stands, the generalized law that you're praising in your article, evolved together with a number of institutions in a limited geographical and political context. You can't just look at the text and say, we shouldn't have a text about the cyberspace situation, but you have to look at the institutions. And the reason you need a law of cyberspace or the law of the horse is that there are no institutions that actually take care of it. There are institutions that can take care of horses and they can take care of cars and all of those different things. And the system has evolved organically within the political community. But that's just not true for the internet. It lacks its national institutional framework and its uh, polity to a large degree. Now, th that then sort of raises the question, this is early on, but it raises the, another question that sort of flows from this whole discussion. And that is the discussion about internet governance that inherently also has some of its roots in this discussion, I think. That's right. Yeah. I mean, the, the, again, back to this sort of enforcement question, that's classically at the sharp end where the institutions aren't there. I mean, it, it, again, we're looking at this on the in terms of the fraud in the UK. It's still being dealt with by the local constabulary of the place where the victim is. And so the local police officer in, you know, any, any town England is being confronted with a case because classically, you know, I've been defrauded. I walk in the police station. The person has walked in the police station And it is somebody on the other side of the world using some incredibly technical and complex uh, uh, system that has managed to persuade them to send money to a bank, which has then gone to a third bank, which has then gone to another country. There is no way on earth that the you know the institution that traditionally dealt with fraud in the old days. Yes, the you know you walk in the police station. I've been defrauded. Who was it? It was a man with a black hat, and he was in this pub. <laughs> and the policeman could go right. I'll go off and see if I can find the man in the black hat who who cheated you in the coach. And or, or more likely than not, they would say, "Oh, Carl again," because they yeah, would yeah, know exactly. who that they guy was. <laughs> you know, yeah. so the institutional response of a local police force dealing with old-fashioned fraud was fine, but the institutional response for a local police force dealing with an international highly technically complex fraud is uh, you know there's no way they're just not going to do it and so it doesn't get prosecuted and and everybody's unhappy because of that relationship and so you're right the institutions absolutely need to evolve to deal with that and it, and it raised some very big questions because of these particular features of cyberspace and it often brings us back again to what we see in the regulation which is an attempt essentially to make the platforms into the law enforcement institutions. Uh, you know, they're the frontline law enforcement institutions because the platforms are seen as being technically and institutionally capable. And uh, similarly, actually, in the fraud space, it's the banks. People are saying, look, you know, uh, the, the best way to deal with this is to make sure the banks are liable. That's the way that you'll actually get this fraud stopped. If, if uh, somebody's sending money through their systems, you put it on them. So you're looking at the private sector uh, profit-making corporate institutions now to take on a, a role. If it's not them, then who is it? And, and again, the, the traditional governmental institutions don't work. So the other, other opportunity would be to create brand new institutions, uh, internet governance institutions or, or you know, global law enforcement institutions that can, can chase people around. But our experience, Nicholas, has been that, yeah, that's really unlikely to happen. There's all sorts of reasons why it won't, but you're not going to get, I don't know, the International Telecommunications Union is probably going to be much less likely and less effective at regulating how fraudsters get onto global networks than the global platforms themselves. Uh, they're the people who can actually do this more quickly and more effectively. Um, so that's what, what we're doing. I think we are institution building. And one of the things that we've, I don't think we talk enough about is the extent to which we have this or, or, uh, sort of dichotomy of saying, oh my God, these global platforms, they're far too powerful. 
on the one hand. And then on the other hand, every time we try and regulate, create a new law cyberspace, it says online platforms, you must do more state functions. <laughs> you must police election advertising and you must police hate speech and you must police fraud or whatever it is. So we're sort of in this really conflicted position where we hate the power that online platforms have. And at the same time, we're kind of building them up as the institutions or recognizing them as the institutions that can carry out functions that were previously carried out by public entities, local police forces, for example. I, I think that's absolutely right. And it brings up yet another perspective on, on um, the text, I think, that is worthwhile teasing out. And it's like, so what Easterbrook is saying is we don't need law off the horse, for example, law and he's very critical to this notion that you could teach law and another subject and, and sort of almost <laughs> on the border of intellectually aristocratically haughty when it comes to sort of to people who talk about law and. But the real problem is not in the thing that's after the and, the real problem is in law. Because the concept of law as evolved in a community, as upheld by a polity with certain institutions, is what's really challenged by the shift to cyberspace. And that's where we sort of, we enter into this new debate about governance and it can be internet governance and you're quite right, there are several sort of um, half-baked attempts at trying to figure out how to use existing institutions like the the ITU was founded in response to the sinking of the Titanic that was recently, uh, um, had its anniversary recently. Uh, But but there's also this really interesting question. You You could sort of almost, to your point, you could imagine going back and writing an article that was law of platforms in the sense platform generated, upheld, evolved and managed law. And you could go back to Judge Easterbrook and say, you're quite right. We don't need a law of cyberspace, but we need a new kind of regulation. And that's sort of where Lessig is when he says that code will have regulatory effects. But he, if, if you're reading Lessig, even if we read him quite generously, I don't think that he brings it around to the point where he says that the entire legal system needs to be rethought in order to figure out how to regulate this new space. And, and that's... That's an intriguing comeback to to Judge Easterbrook to say that you're right. Your law, as it applies, applies really well to the offline world because that's where it evolved. But it needs to change through its basic institutions if you want to apply it to a global, frictionless, low-cost environment where there are no clear enforcement options. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. So, so, and again, I think Judge Eastbrook was yeah, deliberately sort of uh, uh, tweaking the tails of the people who had who created the notion of cyber law. And I think that's quite right. It was, in, it was invited to this forum on cyber law and he was yeah. like, you're all wrong. You're all wrong. <laughs> but I think he's absolutely right that there is a risk. And we've seen this a number of times of where when you, you know, when you get people specialized in a particular area, um, the, the old classic, you know, when you've only got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And, th- and there is a notion, there's a sort of risk that people are are sort of in that space of um, why well, deal with cyber stuff. And, and therefore, you know, uh, cyber is different. Therefore, I must have a se- separate sort of cyber fraud and uh, cyber hate speech. And uh, so there's, there is a risk if you've... Um, carve something out too much this this notion of you know generalized law and something else that that you start looking for solutions you're motivated to look for particular solutions that that reflect your zone i think it is much healthier to say let's start with the general law let's start with the general fraud law uh, um and let's uh, let's try and end there if we can in terms of the criminal law but what we may need are uh uh it's all i think the way you framed it actually is quite right we need to pay attention to this separate body of what I would normally call private law, which is the law developed by platforms uh, and exercised by platforms. It's not exercised on behalf of a state. They don't have the powers of imprisonment. Thank goodness, a lot of us will say they don't. You know, they, it's very limited. But it, but it has effects like law has effects. Um, so again, if we look at the fraud example, you know, the platforms are not going to prosecute fraudsters. That's not their job. That's the job of the police prosecuting authorities under this general criminal law what the platforms may do is is uh, put deterrence in place uh, they may help with the detection of those individuals by collecting data about them and sharing that that with the police and with the financial institutions there's a whole bunch of things that the platforms can do and and if there is a body of private law effectively that says look this this is the code that a responsible platform would implement 
it, it ends up being complementary to the public door. It's not a replacement for it's it's functionally a little different. But I think we, you know, if you say from a citizen's point of view, I don't want to be defrauded. <laughs> What's in my interest? My interest is in the prosecuting authorities continuing to prosecute fraud, not giving up, working hand in glove with platforms who, through their private law mechanisms, uh, uh, do sit, sort of meet reasonable standards for deterring fraudsters and assisting prosecuting authorities with with uh, making sure they get the information they need in order to be able to go after the person who's just stolen my money. So it's that complementarity, I think, that's important, rather than say the alternative mechanism we say like well, we're just going to go off and like create this whole separate cy- cyber fraud jurisdiction which i think would be a mistake yeah so so it's interesting we, that suggests another legislative avenue that has not been taken to any greater degree and that is that you could currently what you're doing is you're telling the platforms that you're responsible for this and you're using them as choke points or sort of bottlenecks and saying you need to be um, upholding um, these different laws through the enforcement mechanisms that you deploy. But you could also imagine equally saying to the platforms, we now want you to collaborate to build a fraud institution amongst yourselves such that you share fraud information, make it openly available to all of the smaller actors and ensure that as much as possible of this information is in the open domain so that people can use it, look at it and build new things on it to protect consumers. That kind of, of of legislation would also be interesting but we haven't seen i mean there are some some sort of voluntary efforts from platforms like stop malware or the internet the, the counter terrorism forum uh, but what wh- why do you think there is less of that in legislation yeah so I th- I, you're right i think there are some really interesting examples where industry has got together but i think we are a, a little short in terms of um, I think the classic description is it's a co-regulatory model, isn't it? So it's not. So, yeah. so there, there are some self-regulatory initiatives where the platforms themselves have got together, the industry's got together, and said we will do things. But that's entirely voluntary. There's no hook into legislation. And then you have fewer, but you have some regulated models where it's just you know the the regulators tell you that you must do A, B, C, D, and E, and that's it as a platform. There is another model which says. Look, um, the law, there will be a hook in the law, but the law will say, we expect the industry to organize along these lines. And as long as they do, we're not going to to sort of spell out in detail what they need to do. We just expect them to put something in place that looks like this. And that's your sort of classic co-regulatory model. And I think that has been lighter than it should be. I mean, it feels to me that's quite a good remedy for a lot of these things. Um, there's a few examples in the UK was one we cited, I think, before the Advertising Standards Authority, where the, the government has requires industry to create a body to develop and, and implement and enforce standards around the quality of advertising. You can't lie in advertising, all that sort of stuff. And that's done on this sort of co-regulatory model. But that's country specific it, uh, it i think it's harder to do these things again cross border uh, from a legislative point of view and and it does feel a little alien i think sometimes to policymakers it's sort of uh, you know either we're regulating this thing or we're not and the notion that you're going to uh, require an industry to put something in place but you're not going to sort of explain in detail what that thing should look like is quite unusual although i think in a fast moving space like like the online uh, environment that might actually be the best outcome it'd be very interesting actually when we see the online safety bill and and the european digital services act the extent to which they feel co-regulatory that they are you know uh, general guidance is given to the industry but they're allowed to get on with it versus very, very detailed guidance. So there's one area that I've been looking at recently was around age verification. Uh, the, the UK's online uh, safety bill steers businesses very clearly, platforms towards using uh, age verification. doesn't mandate it, but there's lots of areas where you'll find it hard to comply if you don't do age verification. And there's a body of age verification providers who all have their own association. And essentially, platforms will be required to use uh effective age verification mechanisms the way that the regulator Ofcom could decide what an effective age verification mechanism is it could do it the traditional way which is we the regulator will want to look at them all and sign them off in detail or it could say look industry you know you come up with a way of doing age verification and approving it and signing it off as effective and as long as it's 
the age verification provider is part of some industry association or some industry body, we'll accept that. We'll say that's good enough. So again, from the more detailed interventionist regulatory model through to more of a co-regulatory model, and you could imagine that that catching on where you know uh, countries like the UK and the European Union if they decide to go down that path, will be saying to industry, here's things that you need to do uh, in order to to keep your platform safe at the systemic level. And we're going to let you decide how to do it in detail within a general brief that's set in the regulation. And that would look more like the one you model you described, Nicholas, where, the, where it feels more like the platform's coming together voluntarily, but voluntarily, voluntarily uh, under, yes. <laughs> under, under a sort of regulatory threat yeah. of, of problems if they don't voluntarily do these things. <laughs> I think that's right. So one of, one of the things that uh, I think is interesting in this perspective is, is that you, you could also, there is, for example, a few ideas around codes of conduct in the pending European legislation, where the idea would be that if the industry can come together and set a standard, that standard will be normative for how we judge and you know, determine whether or not these things are good enough. And I think there's a lot of value in figuring out exactly how those codes of conduct could be then iterated and perhaps um, applied to, to larger jurisdictions than just the European one. Uh, it's a, it, there's, a, there's a commonality here with how the internet uh, and the standards, the sort of the, the de facto standards uh, rather than the de jure standards of the internet co- came together, where there was a lot of spontaneous organization and coordination that brought the internet standards to the regulatory because they do have a regulatory effect, to Lessig's point, hmm. uh, to, to the regulatory state that they're in today. So you could imagine these new institutions of coordination actually growing out of the system and starting from the frictionless uh, reality that you described earlier and figuring out how to solve those problems. Yes. But I, I also I, w- I do I do want to come back to Judge Easterbrook because I, I think there is, there is some value in, in... So we shall not only dismiss him, we shall also look at where he was right. So there are areas of the law uh, where there were early attempts to talk about cyberspace and to talk about the cyberspace law of X, Y, or Z. And one of the most interesting early attempts was contract law. So there was a UN commission on contract law and the need to, to adapt contract law to cyberspace. And it was then just decided that, no, there's no such actual need, but what we need to do instead is just to apply contract law as it stands. And so what do you think is special about the areas of the law where we didn't see um, a law of the horse-like model evolve? Contract law is one. Another is uh, tort law. Um, yeah. Liability law is largely still applying the old tests of whether or not something is an adequate causality or not. Uh, and so what, what, what's the difference between those areas where Judge Easterbrook's principle holds and those where we go down the route of the law of the horse? Yeah, so I think I think it is whether you ultimately are, um, so uh, uh, whether you're ultimately regulating uh, the the way in which platforms operate, where where I think there is potential for cyberspace law, or whether you're trying to regulate relationships between individuals, which are the examples you've described, where actually the general principles need to hold. So, so if I'm entering into a contract, you know that doesn't fundamentally change because of the internet or cyberspace that is still a contract between two individuals and so i think the example i've used are things like fraud that's still fundamentally an issue of somebody stealing from somebody else so all of the areas where the fundamentals haven't changed i i think to sort of go off and then try and create something cyber is 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 a mistake so i think the areas where it's most likely you know to be useful and effective is where you are you know, specifically regulating. So I think it's actually much more like regulation than classic, classic sort of, you know, criminal civil law in a sense. It's much more yeah. of a regulatory administrative law. Maybe that's the distinction. Um, so with, with banks, you know, there is a body of administrative law regulation that banks need to conform to. Uh, and so if if our cyberspace law ends up looking more like financial regulation, uh, then I think it's more likely to stick. That's administrative law. If our cyberspace law starts trying to overwrite or replace all of the criminal and civil law that we otherwise uh, respect, I think that's where the problem is. Maybe that's a helpful distinction that when when cyber law started, I think people thought 
to your point, Nicholas, that it was going to rewrite civil law. We needed different civil law for contracts. We yeah. needed different criminal law for different offences. In the end, we don't. <laughs> uh, criminal and civil law, you know, are pretty universal, should stay that way. But there may be a specific body of administrative law uh, that is much more akin to the regulation of other sectors where where cyber law, a cyber-specific law is relevant. But then it's not. Is it cyber law? Is it just? It's just. <laughs> it's just regulating uh, a new se- a, a new and different sector. It's not. And, know, yeah, and, it and let's and let's pursue. I think let's pursue that point because it's a good one. I mean, projecting forward, do you think that we will still have different bodies of law in say a hundred years, or do you think that they will slowly meld together? So some of the new crimes, for example, that are the. Um, unlawful intrusion to a computer system is yeah. a specific crime has now been entered into the criminal code as, as, as just a subcomponent part of the criminal code essentially so do you think that we'll see these bodies of law meld in the future that rather than having the dma and then general competition law we will just have competition law with a series of paragraphs that deal with that specific phenomenon that we refer to as platforms is that the long-term trajectory or do you think that we'll have you know, the more we get new technologies, we get decentralized finance, mm. we get different kinds of crypto. Will there be new laws all the time? Ooh, that's a good question. I, I, because I actually think you've just put your your finger on something that is is challenging to project forward. That so, you know, we we do have sector specific laws. There are laws that are relevant to food safety that only apply to the food sector. There are laws relevant to, you know, financial probity that only apply to the financial sector there are laws relevant to safety of drugs that only apply to the pharmaceutical and those law that's enduring that's over tens of years yeah. um and so you know to, to one extent you could you you could sort of argue well some stuff that is specific to cyber should simply be enduring aha but the challenge is that cyber then bleeds into everything else and so there is it's to the extent that there is something that is different uh and unique um then then that then there is a sort of case for a separate regulatory environment but you know online banking versus banking no it's i mean it's just banking so if there's a financial sector that uses cyber that's just financial regulation yeah uh, arguably then you know a lot of what we're hung up on uh, at the moment is relates to social media and when we talk about regulating the internet a lot of it is about regulating social media actually search is another interesting thing so you could argue that you know the the regulation of directories. We can talk about that, but but really the the sort of really strong motivating force for regulating cyberspace about regulating social media, and actually to your point, I think no, the regulation of media will come together. So there will not yeah. be a distinction between social media and traditional media anymore in twenty thirty years time. That's it's already starting to be meaningless um, yeah. from a interesting from a regulatory point of view. Traditional media is is quite keen to secure for itself carve out so they, they'll be able to run a website and have lots and lots of comments on it under the uk online safety bill and they won't fall within the regulation whereas a social media company that has lots and lots of comments will but that's the kind of distinction that is a, a, a law of the horse distinction maybe that i think will not be sustainable I mean, at some point I mean, you know a place I mean, where people can write comments yeah. is is a media company is going to be re- regulated under one environment and I think that this is this sort of also is so interesting. And I think we can shift hats for a moment. So sort of we've looked at this from an outside view where we've said that these are the two different models and why did one prevail in some cases and another in another case. If you're a policy professional, these are two models that you really have to choose between whenever you occur, whenever you encounter a new uh, regulatory discussion. So, so typically, you will have to go full Easterbrook or full Lessig yes. on whatever new proposal is on the table. I mean, you and I have been through this so many times. I, I remember, uh, I remember an early legislative proposal on cloud computing that wanted to regulate cloud computing as a completely new and different phenomenon because everybody knew that it was a new phenomenon. And to a large degree, I felt that at that time. And um, this is this is partly in jest, but I felt very much that the role of the policy team was to clean up after the marketing team. I told everybody that cloud computing was this new brilliant yes. thing, and it was totally different. And and then I had those exact same argument levied back at me from legislators that would say, "We now need a com- cloud computing law." And I would say, "Why? Because it's this completely new thing that will change everything." And I was like, "Wait, I've heard this before." So so at that point, as a policy professional, you're you you sort of you want to go full Easterbrook. 
can say it's just computing. Yeah. Ignore the cloud thing. It's just computing. You haven't. There's no need to regulate computing beyond what you have in proper general law today. And same thing in the early discussion about platforms, actually. Uh, the early platform legislation, one of the core arguments that the industry made, and I know you and I also were sort of making, was, okay, look, you have consumer law, you have competition law, you have data protection law. What is it that is not covered for consumers in platforms? Why do you feel that you need a consumer platform legislation? And I think to some degree that was a successful argument because there were no real gaps. Um, but in you know other cases, it's been a huge failure or we've been on the other side, network yes. neutrality. Between the telco legislation and the competition legislation, is there really a need for network neutrality? And we go like, yes, I'm Lessig in this case. <laughs> I do think that there's a huge difference. So here's my Lessig hat, and I'm going yeah. to tell you why it's different and how it can affect the entire ecosystem if you don't have a network neutrality. And it, it's so interesting because these two perspectives are tools for you as a policy professional. And it, there is a right and wrong model for society. So I don't think that this is just sort of something, and it's not a game you play. But ultimately, it's also sort of you, you're going to have to look at this and decide, am I Easterbrook or Lessig? when you see every new legislative proposal, right? Yeah, and I think it's right. I think understanding your own unconscious bias <laughs> and recognising yeah. and, and being very deliberate about it, and actually the way you frame it, I think, is nicely. On, on this, I'm Easterbrook. On that, I'm Lessig, I think, is a nice way of framing it. But just you know, recognising that, recognising when you're being inconsistent, <laughs> absolutely right. I think we can, we can end up arguing in both directions. <laughs> um and then, and then I think, but I think there is a nuance. I mean, I, I certainly, I think, I my instinct is more Easterbrook. I'm like, I'm, my starting point is, I, I'm also I, more Easterbrook over time. I think yeah. I used to be more Lessig, really, because the cyberspace uh, exceptionalism allowed you to say, well, hang on, CDA two thirty really makes sense because it's really important that cyberspace be treated as the very separate thing that it is. Yeah, uh, but over time, you know, that's uh, I, a harder argument to make. Exactly. So yeah, so I think I'm more I'm more yeah, more Easterbrook, but recognizing that what actually needs to happen is the general law needs to keep up to date with the way that society is evolving. Yeah. And so that so it, you know, if the problem is that the general law is out of date, the solution is to update the general law, not to just kind of go, oh, well we'll create a new a new separate cyber law. So that's sort of where I'm coming from. Having said all that, as we've discussed earlier, there are some areas where um where I think the regulation, the administrative law piece, uh, uh, is is also also needs to evolve, and the, so the institutions and the administrative law needs to needs to evolve yeah. on the one hand, but on the other hand, the general law needs to evolve. So if if the problem, you know, with fraud cases is that they're they're sort of happening at this massive scale and they're happening sort of cross jurisdictionally, then there may be some need to change general fraud criminal law to to ensure that it can be enforced uh given the change in the landscape so the, la the cyber changes the landscape yeah. in many cases and if the landscape has changed you may then need to change the general laws in order to keep up with it but that should be your first instinct as you for me the first thing the, 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 of, instinct. the majority of fraud yeah the majority yeah. of fraud crimes are, as you said, online, which means that if you're talking about fraud now, you're de facto talking about online fraud. So that should be defining for how you think about fraud law. Yeah. Right? So that should be how you think about fraud law and how you reform it and how you build it out. And so it, it suggests a really funny progression right? from, from the early days, 1996. That was the age of Easterbrook, then turned into the age of Lessig with cyberspace exceptionalism, with a, with a, with a dose of John Perry Barlow on top. Yes. And then as we progress, we're actually back at Easterbrook. Yeah. Uh, but we're back at Easterbrook in a very in a different reading. The new reading of Easterbrook is, you're quite right, we don't need these and laws, but we do need to change law because law as an institution has not kept up with the landscape changes that you described. Yeah. And to your point, and where the cyber laws come in is that they are, I think, particularly uh, impacting on the other areas of Larry Lessig's uh, uh, sort of quadrumvirate. There are four, four forces that he sees sort of affecting behavior. There's, there is the classic law. There's also market forces. There's also social norms. And there's also code, the architecture uh, that platforms are written on. Right. I think the administrative law is trying to look at those other three areas in particular, where, as you referred earlier, Nicholas, to, to the general technical standards on which the internet runs, well, well, they are less sort of prone to be, they're based on code, 
they're less prone to be influenced by market forces and norms. I mean, the, the norms are, how do we make the packets go faster? <laughs> uh, they're, not, they're not sort of yes. classic social norms. And, and market forces, you know, come into it a lot less. They're not, they're, people aren't sort of competing, uh, at least in terms at least of... At historically, sort of I think that's true. Yeah, yeah and, and people have tried to bring market forces in more. But if you look at another area, you know, this area around age verification again, you talk, uh, one of the proposals in the UK is to have all uh, pornography providers be required to carry out age verification if the UK user presents themselves and check that they're aged over 18. And and so that is the law requiring a change in the code of those websites in response, they believe, to societal norms that say that, you know, under 18-year-olds shouldn't be able to access them. And the primary uh, resistance is a resistance actually based on market uh, consideration. So what the pornography provides are saying is, look, UK government, if you can guarantee that all uh, providers of pornography services will equally have to reintroduce this boarded friction for UK users, mm-hmm. uh, then we're okay with that. We can live with that because it's not going to change the market forces fundamentally. We'll still compete. And in, in fact, actually, if you're a big pornography provider uh, who also offers age verification services, you may well be saying, well, you know, as long as you've blocked all the other guys, actually, I could win out of this. So law is changing, requiring a change in code and the resistance or the main considerations around the market uh, conditions. And so that's, I think, sort of the action area for cyber law is where it is being used to to change code, often, as I said, to reverse the frictionless, borderless nature of the internet. And the other key considerations that are going to come into play are the norms and the market forces. Uh, And the market force in particular, I think, are very strong uh, when it comes to the cyberspace, because frankly, there's so much money to be made and people are making huge amounts of money. So that's another area that um, I think is really critical to look at and to understand when when we're trying to get the whole picture and understand why the cyber space administrative law may you know look a little different from law in other areas and this is interesting because the the original cyberspace exceptionalism um, had a very different question the question in lessig is what are the values that we should embed in this new cyberspace and the kind of cyberspace legislation that you describe is how can we embed the values from the outside world into the cyberspace so that they accurately reflect those values that we already hold and we already believe to be true a lot of the early cyberspace exceptionalism was this idea that you had a chance to start anew yes. that you could build a legislative system you could build a normative system even an economic system that would be completely new. And what we're seeing now, I think you made this point really well earlier, where you said that a lot of the the legislation we're seeing is actually, no, let's make it the same (laughs) so so that we can make sure that it is, that is resembles with friction and scale and all those things, a a re-territorialization of the way we interact. And, and, and that's sort of, that's, that again, I think, is a version of Easterbrook rather than a version of Lessig. Yeah, yeah, because you're right. You know, the De- Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace, which we've discussed, um, yeah. wanted the norms to be the norms of the internet community and not the norms of the weary giants of flesh and well, steel. The norms of the then internet community, the then which internet was a community, small exactly. set of Californians. Yeah. Yes. Exactly, <laughs> and, and in fact, again, yes, you look at the rhetoric around the current legislation in places like the UK and the EU, and it's precisely saying, look, your norms are wrong, internet companies. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and therefore, we are going to use the power of the law to enforce our norms uh, or to, to require you to embed our norms in your services by changing your code uh, in order for for our norms to become the dominant ones. And again, it'd be interesting to see in practice how different, in fact, the norms are or whether or not, uh, certainly my sort of uh, supposition is that there have been individual instances where internet companies have made bad decisions that have then you know, been generalized as saying the internet companies are terrible and they have terrible norms and terrible values. I actually think the, the values of a YouTube and a Facebook and a TikTok are actually very close in most cases to the normative values of society. But there, there'll be some things at the edges where um, they'll certainly be pushed in different directions. Um, but as I say, I think, you know the clear intention of the legislation is to say no we the government get to decide the norms and we get to instruct you uh, to code our norms into your systems at least for people who are using your service from our country um perhaps one way to kind of summarize the way in which the cyberspace law is trending right now
Mm, it's a very, very, very good summarization. I think as a summary. Um, so, uh, so we have talked about uh, cyberspace and the law of the horse, uh, both the original article by Judge Easterbrook and the follow-up article by Lessig. The two different perspectives on on what actually happens to legislation when technology changes. One saying that it doesn't change law at all. Law applies equally to new technology as it did to old technology. And the other saying, that, well, no, we actually have to make some basic choices about how this new technology should be regulated and the kinds of values that it should express. And, you know, then we've seen it go full circle back to Judge Easterbrook saying, yes, you're probably right, but we should have it express the old values, which is a version of Easterbrook saying the old values apply, not just the old law, but the old values should apply to the new technology. And so the, the tension between the two, the interplay between the two is really at the heart of a lot of the cyberspace law debate or a lot of the tech policy debate, don't you think? It, absolutely. And and perhaps just, yeah, to sort of summarize that um, or to, to sort of give an example of that framing, there's a lot of debate around the UK's online safety bill at the moment because it defines a category of content as legal but harmful. I mean, that is almost a, a sort of direct, explicit <laughs> sort of framing to say, we are yeah. going beyond the law. I mean, you could not be more explicit. So it's saying if there is the law. There's the law, the Judge Easterbrook uh, classic law thing. But somehow, when it when we, when it comes to cyberspace, that's not enough. And we're going to go further, and we're going to create regulation that relates to content that is not illegal. So in other words, we're creating an entirely separate notion for content online than we would for content offline, uh, because now we're requiring a control of that. So I think that's almost like the the sort of uh, pinnacle of where we've got to in terms of uh, both there's a sort of a huge amount of lip service given to the what's illegal online, offline should be illegal online, we're not going to have a law of the horse, and then like embedded firmly within the latest set of proposals that we've seen and we're all debating, you see something that says no cyberspace is different and must be treated differently and must have Mm -hmm. its own special codes. That's that's a good way to sum us up and wrap this discussion up. We we have to decide whether or not it's different or it's the same, and on the basis of that determination, we uh, we pick our policy options. So you can uh, read more about this and about the recent proposals from the UK government on your website, which is www.regulate.tech. And thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope to have you with us and for the next episode as well. <music>